Many have done it before us. They have conquered all their enemies within. And so we too will be able uh, to conquer all our enemies within if we follow the instructions given of how to overcome these enemies. So first of all, we need to recognize the enemy. <clears throat> if we do not recognize the enemy, then it will stay powerful and so it will be able to attack us time and again. When we are able to see the enemy as an enemy, then it already loses some of its power and so it becomes easier to face this enemy. So once we are able to recognize the enemy and to face it, then we have gained a much, a much better position from where we can engage uh, in this battle of the mind. Our biggest enemies are in our minds. There is actually nothing to fear in the outside world. What we should be really afraid of is our mind or our untrained mind, our unliberated mind. Or more precisely speaking, we should be afraid of those mental states which are able uh, to cause us so much misery and suffering. So these mental states that are able to give us a lot of suffering are called the hindrances and there are five of them. So these five hindrances are the first is sensual desire the second one is ill will, aversion. The third one is sloth and torpor. The fourth one is restlessness and remorse. And the fifth one is skeptical doubt. So if we are overta overtaken by one or even several of these enemies, these hindrances, then our mind is hindered to perceive things as they really are. And so with that we get a wrong notion or wrong perception of what is actually happening. That's why they are called hindrances. They hinder the clear seeing of things. They distort our perception. That is why it is so important to be watchful of these hindrances and recognize that they are obstacles or hindrances to our meditation practice when they are not dealt with properly. The weapon to fight these enemies or hindrances <clears throat> is nothing but mindfulness or awareness. <coughs> so 
So whenever these hindrances arise, we should be mindful of them. We should observe them attentively. When our observing mind, mindfulness, awareness, is strong and penetrating, then it will not take long to overcome these hindrances. But if mindfulness is still weak and sluggish, then the hindrances have the chance to get stronger and more powerful. And so with that, they overwhelm our mind. And so when the hindrances have taken over, then uh, there is not much mindfulness left, mindfulness left, or no mindfulness at all. And so then we are overcome by some longing, sensual desire, or carried away by sloth and torpor, being lost somewhere in dreamland. So as I said before, these hindrances are nothing but mental states that can arise in our minds. They can arise and they also can disappear again. As every uh, mental phenomenon, these hindrances are subject to arising and disappearance. They do not last forever. They have no real substance. They can disappear at any time. If our mindfulness is strong and uh, constant, then these hindrances have a hard time to show up on the battlefield of the mind. <coughs> so now let's have a closer look at these five hindrances. The first one is sensual desire. The Pali word for it is Kama Chanda. So it means the desire of the senses for pleasant and nice sensations. The desire for pleasant, pleasant visible objects, for pleasant sounds, pleasant smells, desire for pleasant tastes, touching sensations, and the desire for nice, pleasant mental objects. In order to feel happy and contented, our minds always reach outward to get some nice and pleasant sense uh, input or impressions. So there is this constant thirst to satisfy this desire with enjoyable objects. But in their ignorance, people do not uh, realize that this is actually without end. How much and how often they gratify their senses with pleasurable objects, it always comes to an end. And then there is other, uh, some more wanting left. Because things are subject to arising and disappearing. So they cannot last forever. 
So if people rely on external things for their happiness, then they will never get it. Then they are bound to fail. So based on this insatiable thirst for pleasurable sense inputs, the, the eyes crave for nice vis visible forms and shapes. The ear, ears crave for pleasing and enjoyable sounds. The nose craves for good, fragrant smells. Then the tongue craves for nice, delicious tastes. The body craves for enjoyable and pleasing touching sensations. And lastly, the mind craves for nice and pleasurable mind objects. So each of the sense doors, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body and the mind, has a special kind of field for what it craves. The ears do not crave for nice visible things. The tongue does not crave for nice visible things. So they have their own domain. The Buddha used the simile of the six animals to show how the six sense uh, doors are like animals, each drawn to their natural habitat. In that simile of the six animals, the Buddha said, Suppose a man would catch six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds and then tie them by a strong rope. He would catch a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal and a monkey and tie each by a strong rope. Having done so, he would tie the ropes together with a knot in the middle and release them. Then those six animals with different domains and different feeding grounds would each pull in the direction of its own feeding ground and domain. The snake would pull one way, thinking, let me enter an anthill. The crocodile would pull another way, thinking, let me enter the water. The bird would pull another way, thinking, let me fly up into the sky. The dog would pull another way thinking, let me enter a village. The jackal would pull another way thinking, let me enter a charnel ground. And the monkey would pull another way thinking, let me enter a forest. So similarly, our uh, six senses, they crave for their thing. As I said, the eyes crave for nice visible objects. The ears crave for pleasing uh, sounds and so on. 
now that you are here, being, being on retreat, there is some sense deprivation. Uh, here you don't have the usual sense input that you would have at home. So here uh, there is no TV, not listening to music, not going out to the movies, not having a nice conversation with your friend, and also you're not taking out your body to have a nice massage, you're not taking it out to the gym, whatever. And so as much as, as as much of the usual sense input is cut down in a retreat, then the mind latches to that which is still available. And one thing that is still available is food. And so as a result, the craving for food in a retreat can become quite strong and obvious at times. Uh, it feels even embarrassing. But actually this can become a very interesting field of observation uh, in our meditation practice. Our attitude, um, our attitude and relationship in food, to food, in particular proves to be an indication of our attitude and relationship to other objects in general. So basically, there is one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing, never enough. For example, while eating, you take a spoonful, put it in your mouth and chew it. And then, um, you, you swallow it and after you have swallowed the food then it's no longer there and because the mind wants to have something else there wants to have some more nice taste then it makes everything to get it immediately replaced and so once you have swallowed your food you will already find the next spoonful ready in front of your mouth So the food, when we are chewing it, having it in our mouth, provides some nice, um, some nice uh, feeling uh, for your tongue. So some nice, pleasurable input. But once um, you have swallowed it, then the base for that pleasurable feeling is gone. It's not there anymore. And so the disappearance of the food results in the disappearance of the pleasurable sense input based on that food. And so the mind does everything to get it immediately replaced. And so then the next spoonful of food is already waiting in front of your mouth. So isn't that interesting? Next time when you have your meal, tomorrow morning at breakfast time, observe this process of eating. 
you know, is it possible to simply chew and swallow your food without your hand already uh, getting the next spoonful uh, ready for you? You know, swallow, chew the food, swallow the food, and only then start to move your hand to get another spoonful. It's easily said, a bit more difficult to uh, eat in this way. Or another example uh, is listening to music. Again, that provides us with some uh, pleasurable, enjoyable sound. And that's what the ears are craving for. So, when I was still young and living with my parents, uh, a few times it would happen like this. My father, he liked to listen to Swiss traditional music on the radio. I did not like that kind of music. I liked classical music. And so, sometimes when my father would sit in the living room, the radio on with the Swiss traditional music, when I was entering the living room, I immediately would go to the radio and turn it to a station with classical music. Sometimes it was the other way around. I was there listening to my classical music and when my father entered the living room he would automatically go to the radio and turn it to a station with Swiss traditional music. So of course for both of us this happened quite automatically. The mind was experiencing an unpleasant sound and so it immediately needed to change the situation to make it a pleasant one. And this is our deluded human nature. In order to feel happy and content, we need to have nice and pleasant sense impressions all the time. That is where our thirst, our craving springs from. So as long as we look outside to quench our thirst, we will never experience real and lasting happiness. Our craving will keep us in this cycle of birth and death endlessly. The second of these hindrances is ill will aversion. In Pali it's called Vyapada. It's the opposite of the first hindrance. Kamachanda or sen sensual desire craves or yearns for an object, for, an, for a pleasant one. And so ill will, Vyapada, wants to get rid of an object, mostly an unpleasant one. So Vyapada includes ill will, aversion, 
anger, hatred, resentment, irritation, dislike, despair, and fear. Whenever we feel irritated or angry, whenever there is ill will, usually we are very quick to find the cause of this anger or ill will outside of us. This can be the rude words of another person, it can be the weather, or any other um, unsuitable conditions. Whatever it is, we are very quick to put the blame on the other person, on the situation or the circumstance. Usually, people are not aware that this mental state of ill will or anger only arises because there is a basic misconception of how things are. And especially, it's the misconception of there being a self, a me, an ego. And so, it has then it becomes an ingrained habit to react to uh, unpleasant input with ill will, with aversion, with anger. Many years ago, I had some time to meditate um, in Burma when I was at the forest center. Usually I had to take care of the foreigners there, translate for them, for the Sayadaw. But usually uh, in the hot season, around this time of the year, when it's really boiling hot in Burma, most foreigners had left. And so that was the time when I was free to meditate. <laughs> I didn't mind uh, the heat to meditate. And so, one year, as I was meditating, at that time, there were two young novices staying at the meditation center. And these two novices, they had to take care of an old Sayadaw, who was just uh, living there. And besides taking care of this old Sayadaw, they also had to learn the Buddhist scriptures. And in Burma, Learning the scriptures basically means to memorize them. And memorizing is mostly done memorizing aloud. And especially uh, kids, novices, when they uh, memorize, they don't just do it in a normal voice, but they shout. And they can shout on top of their lungs. And so Sayadaw and the two novices, they were only staying two houses away from my kuti, where I was meditating. And um, besides memorizing the scriptures when they were free, they would run around and shout and sort of across the path there was a little shed and Inside there were some spare pieces of or sheets of tin. 
in Burma they have to make the roofs of tin. And so then these novices, they would take a stick and bang on these sheets of tin. So, but in a way, you know, they were just behaving as young kids would do. Very normal. But the thing was, I was there meditating. <laughs> and, of course, uh, I started, uh, I noted hearing, 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 hearing. And actually my first years when staying at the main center in Yangon, I was used to meditate with noise because it was on the main road. There were tea shops around. Right in front of the center there was a bus stop. And buses in Burma are quite noisy. They're also using the horns. So there was basically this constant noise from the cars, music from the tea shops the horns, and so ever. But uh, with time, I got used to that, to that kind of noise or sound. But now, having these two novices there, making all this noise, um, I got quite upset, irritated. Again, hearing, 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 or irritated, irritated, irritated. Anger, 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 anger. And this went on for days and weeks. And finally, I got so hooked up in this aversion that my mind went over and over the same reasoning again. There would be this tape in my mind saying, you know, this is a meditation center, which is supposed to be a quiet place. And especially this forest center has been uh, set up for foreigners who come to Burma to meditate. And so they should have a quiet, peaceful place. How can they allow these novices to stay here? They should know. You know, novices, they make noise. And especially when they learn uh, they shout on top of their lungs. So this is not right to have these novices here. They should be sent away. And on and on and on. And again and again and again. It took quite some while, time, but finally... I got so wary of getting angry again and again. And anyway, I realized my anger did not change anything. You know, my anger did not make the novices become uh, quiet kids. <laughs> they did not leave the place. And so, what I then started to realize more and more clearly was the fact that my anger was only burning my mind. It only made me feel more miserable, angrier. And so it was actually myself that had to experience these unpleasant uh, sensations caused by the anger, both in the body and the mind. And so it was only with that uh, understanding that uh, I finally could let go of this anger, that 
I did not indulge anymore in it. I saw it was utterly useless, no point. So, Vyapada, ill will, anger, this is a very dangerous enemy. It not only sets our minds on fire, but the whole world. The many wars and conflicts that are raging in countless places of this world are only signs, are only the outer signs of the wars that are going on in people's minds. So whenever we are angry with somebody, when there is ill will towards another person, actually we ourselves are the victim. In the Buddhist scriptures, they use an example of throwing hot ashes towards the person you are angry with. But as the wind is blowing against you, once you throw the ashes, the hot ashes, they fall back on you. So that's why we should realize that Vyapada, ill will anger, is one of our big enemies or hindrances and therefore um, be mindful of it whenever it appears. To apply mindfulness to all uh, of our ill will or anger. Even if our ill will and anger is very strong, when noted attentively, mindfully, it will not have a chance to survive for long. It will then eventually weaken and dissolve. Some Western psychologists hold the view that uh, anger needs to be acted out because not acting out one's anger would amount to suppress it. And therefore, um, they send out their clients into the woods where they can lash out their anger by shouting at the trees and banging at the trees with a stick. At the conference, the Dalai Lama was asked if there were any benefits of acting out one's anger. Apparently, the Dalai Lama put his head down a bit and sat there for about five minutes. It seemed as if he was going through all the scriptures to find a passage that would mention any benefit. Uh, of acting out one's anger. After about five minutes, he lifted its head and his head and said, No. I think this is an important point to understand. There are other ways to successfully, successfully deal with anger than just to lash it out. Although the person may feel relieved 
after acting out his or her anger and therefore feel good. This is actually counterproductive. By acting out one's anger, the habitual reaction is enforced and strengthened. And each time one does it, it becomes even stronger. In the Abhidhamma, actions are divided into prompted actions and unprompted actions. Prompted actions are those actions which are prompted by an external source or instigated by something or somebody. Unprompted actions are those actions which are not prompted or not instigated by an external source. For example, if a friend calls you and says, let's go to the monastery and offer some dana, then if you go along and offer some dana, this would be a prompted action. If you have just a thought of going to the monastery to offer some food and then go and offer it, then that would be an unprompted action. Likewise, if you get angry because somebody insults you and retaliate with angry words, then this um, action would be a prompted action. So this anger would be prompted. There's an external um, cause. But if you just bang a stick angrily at the tree in the forest, then this would amount to an unprompted action. And now, the point is this. Unprompted actions leave a much stronger imprint in your mind. And this is true for both wholesome and unwholesome actions. Therefore, Lashing out your anger in the forest is an unprompted action and therefore engenders a very strong imprint on your mind. As a result, this habitual action of reacting with anger becomes even more powerful and strong. You know, observing anger, not uh, reacting on it, not lashing it out, lashing it out. So observing it mindfully is not a way of suppressing it, but actually it's a way of transforming its energy. Now, the third hindrance is sloth and torpor. In Pali this is called Tinamita. With this enemy we are all very familiar and for some meditators it has even become a very good friend, unfortunately. <laughs> sloth and torpor means mental dullness mental inertia, drowsiness, and indolence. 
it's a state where the mind is sluggish, lazy and heavy. And in most cases, this mental inertia, mental drowsiness, leads to sleepiness. And uh, some meditators are even able to fall asleep in their sitting meditation. So when sloth and torpor creeps into the mind, then the objects become blur. They are not distinct anymore. And nothing can be seen clearly any longer. And at that time, also thoughts can creep into the mind quite easily, sometimes even unnoticed. And as there is a lack of energy and precision, then also the body starts to become uh, legs. This may manifest as the head, sort of tilting to one side or nodding. And when the yogis, the meditators have reached a state where the head sort of just nods, (laughs) falls uh, over, then the Burmese call this meditator Bodhenyu Yogi. And Bodhenyu is kind of a lizard. And when they mm, rest on a tree, then they make this kind of nodding movements with their heads. So then Bodhenyu Yogi. And if that mental... Uh, inertia gets even stronger so not only the head will uh, tilt and nod but then also the body starts to sway to move sideways, back and forth and I have seen yogis whose body almost reaches the ground (laughs) before they tilt up again if mental sluggishness is so strong that the meditator even falls asleep, then the Burmese call this meditator Mue Yogi. Mue means snake. And snakes make this hissing sound. Sounds. Sometimes it happens that meditators come to the interview and report about a state where everything was quiet, peaceful, no disturbances, nothing. But then on uh, further investigation, it just turns out that they have fallen asleep. (laughs) (laughs) So sleepiness is a very common hindrance. Even Venerable Mogalana was struggling with sleepiness in his meditation after he had become a monk under the guidance of the Buddha. So Venerable Mogalana was practicing in the forest on his own. And when Venerable Mogalana was overcome and struggling with sleepiness, the Buddha, by his omniscience, knew that this was happening to Venerable Mogalana. 
And so the Buddha went to where Moggallana was and approached him asking, are you nodding, Moggallana? And Moggallana kind of, yes. (laughs) And the Buddha, always full of compassion, did not uh, scold him, but then he gave him a talk on how to deal with sleepiness or how to overcome uh, sleepiness. And after having listened to that talk, Moggallana continued with his meditation and it is said that within seven days he became an arahant, fully liberated, endowed with supernormal powers which were only second to the Buddha. So what are these ways of overcoming sleepiness that the Buddha told uh, taught to Venerable Moggallana. If they were helpful for him, I think they would also be helpful for us. So first of all, when sleepiness arises, when the mind feels sluggish and dull, we should apply awareness, mindfulness to it. Make this dull and sluggish state of mind the object of our awareness and note it, observe it. And when we observe sleepiness, we should try to arouse a little bit of more mental energy because the mind is inert because it lacks energy. And so if we just try to observe it, noting sleepy, sleepy, (laughs) it will be difficult. But, so we should arouse a little bit of energy and note it sleepy, 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 sleepy or dull, 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 dull. Sometimes this is enough to uh, overcome this inert and sluggish state of mind. Sometimes not. And so then we should proceed to one of these eight ways of overcoming sleepiness as the Buddha taught to Venerable Moggallana. The first way is to change one's attitude. So this means not to pay attention to the thought causing or preceding the state of drowsiness. And it also means not to enjoy that thought or not to enjoy this drowsy state of mind. Because sometimes when the mind is inert and drowsy, it actually can feel quite calm and peaceful. Not much is happening. And so meditators may actually enjoy uh, this state. So therefore, one should change one's attitude, make sure that one is not enjoying this state, but rather making an effort to overcome it. So if this doesn't work, then the second way to deal with a drowsy mind is 
to reflect on inspiring passages. So, if a person is knowledgeable of the Buddhist scriptures, then there is a wide range of material to reflect on. For people who do not have much knowledge of the Buddhist scriptures, it may be enough to reflect on one of the attributes of the Buddha. Like one of the attributes is Arahan, which means the Buddha is worthy of respect and honor. Just uh, reflect um, on that attribute that he is a worthy uh, person can help to overcome our uh, sluggish mind. Or one uh, could also reflect on a passage that one has read in any Dhamma book, an inspiring passage. And then the third way that the Buddha taught was because if that not if that doesn't work yet, then the third way is to recite this passage aloud. Of course, uh, when we are meditating uh, with other meditators, then we have to be considerate of our fellow meditators. You could do that uh, when you are in your room or when nobody uh, is around you. If these three ways of mentally arousing energy do not yet work, then one should uh, turn to some bodily activity to overcome a sleepy mind. And so the fourth way that the Buddha mentioned is to pull one's ears to pull one's ear lobes and one even can pull around the rim of the ear and massage it, pull it. And you will see, this has quite an energizing effect on the body and with that it brings energy to the mind as well. And from my personal experience, I have found this one especially helpful. So if pulling your earlobes does not yet work to overcome sleepiness, then the fifth way is to rub your face, your arms or your legs. Simply to rub your face or your arms and legs. Also this uh, has an energizing effect on your body and with that the mind uh, will become brighter again. If rubbing your face, arms and legs does not help you to overcome a sluggish, sleepy mind, then the next way is to splash cold water on your face. That might wake you up, um, may, uh, make you feel awake. If this doesn't work, Yet, then the next way is to look at a lighted object, to open your eyes and look at the source of light. So this could be look at the sun or at night, at the moon, if it's out, the stars, or to look 
at the light bulb. So looking at light also uh, energizes your body and mind. And so with that one may be able to overcome a sluggish and dull mind. If all these ways have not yet helped to dispel uh, sleepiness, drowsiness, then one can resort to the last way, the eighth way of overcoming sleepiness. And this is to get up and walk briskly, or even to walk backwards. This needs a bit more attention, and so this will help to overcome uh, your inert mind. And especially if one could go outside to the fresh air and walk, walk a bit briskly, that finally should help to overcome the sluggish, dull and sleepy mind. So, if after all, after having applied all these eight ways uh, of overcoming uh, sleepiness, if that doesn't work, then the Buddha said that one should go and lie down and rest for a short moment. And as soon as one feels refreshed, one should quickly get up and uh, continue with one's practice. However, this last point, uh, having uh, lying down and having some rest, is quite a difficult one uh, for many meditators. Who does not want to surrender to sleep when lying down? Even with the very best of our intentions, when the mind is dull, inert, when there is sleepiness, it's quite difficult to stay awake once one has laid down. So many years ago, in our uh, center in the forest, we had an Australian yogi who reported such an incident. He said that the other day, late in the afternoon, he started to get quite sleepy. The mind was very dull and drowsy. And so he tried to apply these different ways of overcoming sleepiness, but he said nothing worked. And so he resorted to the last point, went back to his room to lie down for a short while so that later on he could continue. But, as he said, he fell asleep and it was only the next morning that he woke up again. So this is why Chamiye uh, Sayado Saito Ujjanaka instructs his meditators not to lie down in such a case but to sit in a chair with an armrest uh, or backrest just leaning against the back and in this way one should just very superficially be aware that one is sitting in the chair or being very superficially aware of some sensations in the body and in this way meditators will be able 
to regain that energy and strength and then be able to continue with the practice. And the likelihood of falling asleep in the chair is not as big as when lying down. So today we let it be with these three hindrances. Tomorrow I will continue to talk about the remaining two. So there is sensual desire and ill will, anger, sloth and torpor. And then we have restlessness and remorse and skeptical doubt. And there is an interesting analogy for these five hindrances, um, comparing them to water in a pond. So when none of these hindrances are present in the mind, then that's like the water of the pond, which is very clear and transparent. When sensual desire is present in the mind, then it's like um, water mixed with different dyes. So if I put red and green and yellow and blue uh, colors into the water, then the water will become red and yellow and green. So very pleasing, very nice. So that's uh, sensual desire. Then the second hindrance, ill will, is compared to the water of the pond boiling. And when the water is boiling, it's not clear anymore and cannot see down to the ground any longer. Sleepiness, a drowsy inert mind, that is compared to the water covered with moss or algae. Again, uh, then we cannot uh, see to the ground of this pond any longer. When the mind is overcome with restlessness and remorse, then it's like the water of the pond whipped by the wind. So then the surface of the water has all these ripples, little waves. Again, which makes it impossible to see to the bottom of the pond. And finally, (coughs) skeptical doubt is like murky and muddy water. (coughs) So... To sum up, it is important to recognize these hindrances as hindrances and then immediately apply awareness to them, immediately apply mindfulness to them. And so then we simply transform these hindrances into an object of meditation. And with that, it is no longer a hindrance or an enemy but actually then uh, it becomes a friend.
as we very attentively and carefully observe sensual desire or ill will, then we will not get drawn into the content or the storyline of it. Instead, then we can become aware of the nature of ill will or desire. And with strong uh, mindfulness and when it's constant, then the hindrance, be it the desire or ill will, has not much chance to survive for long. A strong and uh, penetrating mindfulness has the power to transform a hindrance and has also the power to overcome it completely. And this is true for all of the hindrances. <clears throat> so may all of you be able to skillfully deal with these hindrances, overcome them, and become eventually completely liberated. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.